Hi, welcome to The Key. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed. I hope you and your loved ones are, like me, starting to feel the pandemic's stranglehold on our lives loosen ever so slightly. We're still a good ways off from anything resembling normal, I think, but it sure feels like the skies are brightening, literally and figuratively. As graduation season approaches, I've been thinking a lot about the students who will complete college this year and the economy they'll be entering. As painful as it is for many humanists and liberal arts advocates like me to admit, the main reason why most students pursue a post-secondary education is to get a good job or improve their chances at career success. So while I think it's a mistake to judge the quality or value of colleges or academic programs exclusively by how their graduates fare economically, it's not illogical for that to be a major part of the equation. Which leads us to a recent report by Third Way, a think tank here in DC that champions what it describes as, quote, modern center-left ideas. The report looks at how long it takes low-income students at each of 2,500 colleges and universities across the US to recoup what they pay out of pocket for their educations. Using this so-called price-to-earnings premium metric, Third Way finds that more than two-thirds of institutions give their neediest students a return on their investment within 10 years. But at roughly one in five institutions, low-income students still earn less than a high school graduate in their state 10 years after they leave college. On this week's episode of The Key, Michael Itzkowitz of Third Way discusses its analysis and how these data, or something similar, might be used both to help students make decisions about their futures and by governments and others to judge whether colleges and universities are effectively serving their students. We're also joined by Michelle Van Noy, a researcher at Rutgers University, to talk about the landscape for higher education accountability and the importance of focusing on the outcomes of low-income students in particular for policymakers and campus leaders as well. Without further delay, on to the interviews. I'm joined first by Michael Itzkowitz, a senior fellow for higher education at Third Way and author of its Price to Earnings Premium Analysis. Uh, Michael, welcome to The Key. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you briefly describe why you and Third Way came up with the Price to Earnings Premium and, and what it is? So we've been doing research over the past couple of years that look at the quality and value of institutions across the United States. Um, so we've done numerous studies on this. And one of the things that we were particularly interested in was earnings um, and whether or not certain institutions of higher education or college programs actually lead students to um, further employment and a financially secure future. The main reason that we've looked at this is we know nowadays through numerous studies, um, I think the most prominent out of UCLA is that income um, in terms of students, their number one reason for going and pursuing higher education today is to get a decent paying job that allows them for a financially secure future. So in 2015, the Department of Education started producing earnings data, and we thought that this was really interesting to look at. A couple of years back, um, we did a study that looked at the percentage of students that were able to earn at least as much of the average high school graduate after they attended an institution of higher education. And one of the things that we found, which was just stunning and really surprising, is that only 52% of institutions led the majority of their students to be able to earn more than the average high school graduate within six years of initial enrollment. So that study and other ones that we've done sort of brought this, uh, you know, sp sprung us to think about how can we better evaluate institutions across the United States and what are the things that we should take into account while doing so. In this most recent report, you apply the price to earnings premium uh, to low income students and I'm curious, why are they a particularly important group 
for this kind of analysis? Well, we wanted to look at specific groups of students. Um, within our first report, we looked at all students who had attended an institution of higher education. And then we started to think, we know that there's differences between the type of scholarships and grants that different types of students get. They oftentimes pay a different amount to obtain a credential, even if they attend the same exact institution. And we also know that there's different trajectories for whether or not you come from low or high income backgrounds. So the college scorecard data allowed us to look at these specific groups of students and the types of students that we focused on were ones that came from family incomes between zero and $30,000. And these are often the students who the heavy, heavy majority would receive Pell Grants. And they're often pursuing a higher education with the hopes of gaining increased socioeconomic mobility. So we wanted to use this as a starting point to figure out whether institutions were actually delivering on that promise. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you found. So the good news is that the majority of institutions were shown to provide their low-income students with the opportunity to recoup their educational investment really quickly, um, within five years or less. So that's really, really promising in terms of what higher education can deliver even our most vulnerable students nowadays. Um, most institutions are delivering on that promise. Um, we also found some troubling results across the spectrum where we saw over 500 institutions within our sample of 2,500 institutions that were actually leaving their low-income students earning less than the average high school graduate even 10 years after they initially enrolled. So that sort of raises the question of what kind of value is this group of institutions providing low-income students and are they actually being left off economically after they attend? What does a metric like this tell us about the performance of individual colleges and universities? Is the institution the right unit of analysis, or would it be preferable to look at how individual programs perform, as I've heard some people argue? Right now, we have very, very limited accountability for how well institutions serve their students. There's really one main law in place, which is known as the cohort default rate, which was a very well-intended and... Um, an effective law when it first came into place 30 years ago. That law is aimed to measure the amount of students that default on their federal student loans now within three years of leaving the institution. And what we've seen with the cohort default rate is that no one fails us. Everyone passes it. There's over 5,000 institutions and miraculously, everyone passes it and schools have learned how to manipulate it. And we've seen that it's just become ineffective over time. We have the optimistic hope that over the next couple of years that the Congress and administration will start to look at student outcomes a little bit more comprehensively and think about ways to effectively, fairly, and thoroughly update laws. So there needs to be more information in terms of how well institutions are actually serving our students in term, it, it, as a, a, a supplement um, or a replacement to the worst case scenario, which is students defaulting on their federal student loans. The gainful employment system put in place during the Obama administration was one effort to try to impose accountability beyond the default rate, right? And it focused on programs? This rule was made to measure the debt to earnings ratio. So if students within a particular college program, which were all for-profit programs, but only certificate granting programs at public or private nonprofit institutions, if they showed the majority of their students with too much debt and too little earnings, they would withhold funding from that specific college program. Now, this is really effective in the sense that 
it's a little bit more easily politically and also to gather institutional support because if you shut down one low performing college program, it's not necessarily a death sentence for the entire institution. It's identifying programs that are working well as ones that aren't working so well. And obviously if they're leaving students with way too much debt that they can't repay over time, um, it sort of makes sense to look at a program level a pro on a program by program basis to do that. That was scrapped um, within the last administration. So there was no more accountability that's placed on programs whatsoever at this point in time. Whether or not that'll be reevaluated by the Biden administration, if Congress fails to act, we shall see um, in, in the next you know, year or two. One thing that the last administration did do, which the Obama administration actually started, was to produce program level earnings and debt data. This is fantastic. This is the first time that we've seen this across all programs, not just programs that fell under the gainful employment umbrella. So this is really important because we see that, you know, what we've seen with all of our studies is that while for-profit institutions particularly can have disproportionately poor outcomes in terms of earnings and leaving students with a manageable debt, we do see this spread across different types of institutions as well, public and private nonprofit included in those. And from a consumer point of view, it doesn't really matter, you know, if if you're attending whatever institution and you're left with too much debt or you're paying too much for something that doesn't ultimately pay off, you're sort of left in the same circumstance. So uh, Betsy DeVos and folks, you know, at the department have have produced program level earnings data. And what we've seen is that they first they produce it for one year after students graduate. So it's only graduates that are included within this cohort of students. What does that do? It leaves out the students who don't graduate. Those students oftentimes make less. Those students are the most likely to default on their loans. So it is leaving out a large swath of students, which does need to be addressed for. And that's what institutional earnings and outcomes can help account for in addition to this program level data. How does the approach you and Third Way have taken here compare to gainful employment and other ways of measuring post-secondary value or quality? So I did mention gainful employment, which specifically looked at the debt that students take out. That's a huge issue today. We're hearing it in every political conversation in different contexts that there's 1.7 trillion in debt for 45 million borrowers. I like this approach a little bit better because rather than debt, we look at cost. Um, so it's the actual amount that students pay out of pocket to obtain their credentials. So from a consumer perspective, whether that's through loans or personal finance, this helps us gain a better understanding of whether you're getting a return on investment for the type of credential that you're going for at a specific institution. So I think that this is sort of a step forward and an alternative approach that addresses some of the concerns with what we've seen through the gainful employment regulation. Um, and that's, that's a step forward. What this also does is it looks at all institutions um, rather than leaving out some kind of college programs that the gainful employment regulation did. So if Congress wants to really hold all institutions accountable, it does need to look at all institutions of higher education. How much appetite do you see for the equivalent of, we'll call it for shorthand, gainful employment for all, even if it's a different metric, but applying true accountability metrics to all institutions rather than just the for-profits. We know this administration is going to pick up the banner that the uh, Obama administration held and go after the for-profits, but how aggressively are, do you think it's likely to 
try and apply that more generally. You know, Joe Biden worked in the Senate. He likes working with other people from both sides of the aisle. Um, we have seen some traction gained for this kind of let's hold all institutions or programs accountable in the past from the Republican side as well. So specifically, the, the head of the Education Committee in 2019, Lamar Alexander, came out and he actually used the words gainful employment for all. That was super interesting to have that sort of terminology um, where he actually meant that we should look at <clears throat> whether or not students are able to pay down $1 on their federal loans within a couple of years of leaving at specific programs. And if they didn't, he sort of suggested the same thing, that maybe we shouldn't be funding these specific programs within these specific institutions. I think that on both sides of the aisle, um, politicians want to make sure that our higher education system is preparing students to enter the 21st century economy. How do you think about accountability um, for alternative providers? And there's a, a, a live conversation in DC right now about uh, extending the Pell Grant program to uh, more short-term programs, et cetera. I'm curious sort of how this analysis sort of Relates opens the door to that conversation, if, if at all. I would say that this analysis sort of makes that door a little bit more shut. Um, and the reason being is that we've just done the analysis, you know, what the government should be responsible for is the, the programs that they oversee and provide federal funding for. Um, if that extended to more programs, then it's definitely the government's responsibility to ensure that these kinds of programs are leaving students better off. The closest thing that we can look at is short-term programs and institutions that have historically offered these short-term credentials. And what we found within this analysis was very alarming in terms of institutions that primarily award certificates. We actually saw that half of them um, leave the majority or, or the average low-income student earning even less than they would have 10 years after they initially enrolled within a certificate program. So let's put this in perspective. Certificate programs typically run now six to 18 months. You oftentimes pay less, meaning that your return on investment can be even quicker because you paid less to earn your credential. But if you're not earning as much as a typical high school graduate in your state, it hasn't paid off for you at least financially and economically. A lot of certificate programs are also focused on students obtaining employment immediately. If you're going to train to become an auto mechanic, you want to become an auto mechanic immediately. 10 years later, if you're still earning less than someone who never attended an auto mechanic program, it would say that this, you know, fr from a financial perspective, these programs just aren't worth it. And if you were to expand, you know, Pell Grants to shorter term programs that showed similar outcomes, I would say that's a bad return on investment um, from a federal perspective. And with no stronger laws in place to hold shorter term programs accountable, you're really kind of just throwing money into the wind and rolling the dice in terms of whether or not this is going to better prepare people to enter you know, a, a profession and spur the economy at this point. And it could be a very, very risky and expensive investment to do so. So for our audience of mostly of people who work in and around higher education, what do you want the sort of higher education people who might look at this study to think about and conceivably to do in response to how their own institution fares? So first of all, this makes us think about affordability 
in comparison to employability. Um, so in terms of where you sort of fall on the scale, you can kind of see, okay, my students are able to, as a whole, whether it be all students or low income students due to our price learning premium, you can see, um, you know, we're doing really well where students are able to recoup their costs within 10 years. Um, whether or not that's, you know, if you feel comfortable with that, as an administrator, you still want to dig deeper and figure out what's working really well for students and what isn't. So I did mention this program level data that just came out. And when you look at the institution as a whole, from an administration perspective, it's really a starting point. When you start to dig into your programs to see whether or not, you know, how much are students paying for the specific program or the amount of debt that they're taking out versus the amount that they earn afterwards, it can really help you identify where students or programs are thriving and where students are, are just, you know, struggling to survive uh, within a few years after they leave the institution. So I think this provides really a broad starting point within the study that we did. We, I am specifically looking into program level data, uh, since you mentioned it, to think about a certain, you know, a premium that different programs across the United States and within institutions offer. So I hope when we dig into this a little bit more, it'll help illuminate and provide information to administrators that will be really helpful in terms of how well their, their students are performing within every single program within their institution. And then presumably because you broke it down into affordability and employability, you could probably, somebody can work on, there's two levers or two dials you could, you could conceivably play so with. You could either, make sure. You're either paying too much, your, your, your students are either paying too much or they're earning too little or both. A lot of, there's eternal debate within policy circles and then between policy circles and 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 people in an industry like higher education uh, about whether better information is sufficient or whether translating it into some accountability scheme of some kind is essential. Is good information enough or do we need better forms of accountability also? Information is one of the best supplements to accountability that we could possibly have. It is in no way an equal substitute for actually holding institutions or college programs accountable for their students. Um, so in terms of college decision-making, you know, we the more information, the better. And sort of the last administration thought that students would eventually vote with their feet, use this information, and be able to figure out which college programs were gonna work for them. Um, and what we've seen is that that oftentimes doesn't necessarily translate as well as we would like it to within higher education, you know, college decision-making processes. So it's sort of a federal responsibility to ensure that we are, you know, accrediting programs and only providing federal funding for programs that are aimed to make students better off. And if we have information that's actionable that says that they're not, then it is a federal responsibility to um, shepherd those taxpayer dollars effectively and efficiently. So I think that we need to continue to make more information available. I think it's helpful for students. I think it's helpful for administrators. I think it's helpful for policymakers. And we're starting to see this information spread wildly, which is amazing. We weren't really talking about value, you know, 10 years ago uh, in, in a way and in a nuanced way that we are today. So we now have a bunch of data and a lot of it's actionable. So I think it's really important that we continue to provide it to consumers, but also think about ways that we could, uh, you know, further shepherd our taxpayer dollars in an effective and efficient manner. 
Do you read Inside Higher Ed every day? If Inside Higher Ed is an integral part of your day, please show your support by joining our Insider Membership Program. For less than $10 a month, you can take this next step. To become a member today, please visit insidehighered.com membership. Next up on the key is Michelle Van Noy, Associate Director of the Education and Employment Research Center at the School of Management and Labor Relations at Rutgers University at New Brunswick. Uh, Michelle, welcome to the key. Thanks for having me today, Doug. So we just spoke with Michael Itzkowitz from Third Way about the price to earnings premium as a tool both for holding institutions accountable and for giving students information about how well different institutions might position them for a financially secure future. As a researcher who focuses on the links between education and workforce and student decision-making among other topics, what do you make of efforts like this and, and this one in particular? One of the things just to start off with is to be mindful of the sort of different potential goals and uses of these kinds of data. And the way I see it, there's sort of three different uses and they're, you know, they're related, but they, they're different. So one is thinking about these data for accountability, right? So holding institutions accountable. Another one is about sort of thinking about how you can improve institutions. So institutions actually looking at their own data and thinking about how they can do better from their outcomes. And then the third one I, I see is around sort of transparency and sort of making information available to public, to the, to the public and to consumers and to students. And so I, I, so I think that one of the issues here is kind of thinking about who's the audience and who's gonna con consume the, this, this data. If the goal is for students to use it and to the public to use it, I think there's um, one, one, one thing to keep in mind is that that sort of information is, is one piece of the puzzle. So as you mentioned, I, I study sort of how people make decisions about a schooling and, and, and careers. And, and so what we've learned is that, you know, people use a lot of information and a lot of sources, but a lot of it comes down to sort of trust um, and relationships and people they know and experiences they've had. And so information is certainly important and it can be informative to their decisions, but it, it may not necessarily completely move the needle. So it's important to have that information out there, but we have to sort of recognize the complexity of the process and then think about how the information is used and how to get it to people to, so that they can consume it, make sense of it and integrate it into their decision-making. The other two, goals I mentioned, the sort of institutional improvement versus accountability, I think can sometimes feel like they're at odds with each other. So an institution that's really thinking about improvement may not want to hang out their dirty laundry and show everybody and, and make themselves sort of um, uh, vulnerable to kind of um, incentives and, and also disincentives and punishments for, for poor performance. And so I think there is a delicate line between thinking about how making these data available can encourage institutional improvement um, and at the same time, uh, also promoting uh, accountability. The folks at Third Way believe some metric like the price to earnings premium might be a useful addition to our current methods of holding institutions accountable beyond the flawed cohort default rate and the gainful employment system, which has been jettisoned for now and only applies to some college programs. Uh, anyway, do you see the metric as potentially useful for accountability purposes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, in, information is certainly helpful and it's good to know when, which institutions are doing really well and which ones aren't. And I think particularly with the focus on low-income students, that's an important one because, you know, those are, those are important student populations and particularly when thinking about employment out Outcomes. Those are the those are the students who really benefit the most from institutional efforts to help um, with the transition from 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 education to, to work. And so, I think there is something very helpful in terms of pointing out where colleges are doing well or not on on that particular metric. 
you know, I think where we get into challenges and concerns is really when you start moving towards sort of more punitive measures, because these are difficult outcomes to really um, quantify and understand and make sense of and put into context. So, um, you know, there's certainly the issue of just the mix of programs, for example, that an institution might offer. And, you know, because an institution is preparing students for occupations that might not be highly paid, like, you know, education or some, some health occupations, do they get penalized because their earnings are lower? I, I don't know. So that's that's one factor to, to consider. But, you know, on the other hand, I do think that institutions do need to be pushed a little bit and to think hard about what their outcomes are for students, particularly when students are taking on debt to, to pursue um, to pursue college. The latest report from Third Way focuses on low-income students. And why is that a particularly important audience to get this information, this kind of information about and for? Yeah, I think that's a really notable um, aspect of this report is the focus on, on low-income students and particularly looking at their employment outcomes because, you know, those are the students who, who um, you know, really struggle the most, I think, in terms of making that transition to work. They're the ones who don't have all the sort of family contacts and networks that, you know, are often the kinds of things that students use to to get jobs. And so I think that for institutions, it's particularly important to kind of think about um, how they can better help uh, low-income students in that transition. And and these data, I think, really um, bring that to light. These are the students who really um, are coming to college, looking for that sort of ticket to to a good job and to a good career, and the ones who possibly are taking out the debt. And so I think that for, for, for them, it's really important that institutions are being held accountable and that we're understanding kind of what their outcomes are. Thinking back to what you said earlier about the different uses of, of data like these, the institutional data may be most important or useful to policymakers, but I'm interested in uh, how, if you're an institutional leader of some kind, or you're responsible for uh, student success at, at, at an institution, what would you want somebody like that to take from these data or what, or, or per, perhaps eventually from program data? What, what do you think, what might be actionable from an institutional improvement standpoint for somebody looking at data like these? Yeah, I think that for institutions, these data could really provoke some interesting and important conversations that need to be had within their institutions. So I think just looking at the data as they are right now, institution by institution, it's it's helpful to sort of benchmark where any given particular institution is relative to others and possibly, you know, take a look at what other institutions are doing that may be more effective and if there are others that, that are sort of having more success in terms of what some of their actual institutional strategies are. In terms of, you know, really digging down into these issues for any given institution, I think the program level data certainly will be very, would be very impactful in terms of being able to understand where there are challenges, greater challenges um, for students in terms of finding employment. And, um, you know, these are the kinds of data that to me seem like would are just really important for institutional leaders to sit down, you know, on their campuses and talk about them and try and understand, unpack them, what's going on um, underneath these, these issues. You know, is it you know, is it the, the need for stronger um, relationships with their local employers? Is it a need to change the mix of programs that they offer or the particular skills that they're they're giving to, to students in, in these programs? And this doesn't mean they have to fundamentally reorder everything they do educationally to exactly meet employer needs, but they can look at different ways to help improve that transition to, uh, to careers for, for students. 
And there's many, many ways I think institutional leaders can do that, but sort of sitting down and looking at the data can help um, identify, you know, particular programs where there are more challenges and then begin those conversations about how to, how to improve them. How do you think data like third ways or some other information about students' workplace success might be used as the Biden administration decides how to approach higher education accountability going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, where this is most important from a policy standpoint is really to help inform um, where, you know, there's a particularly bad return on investment for students. And so particularly where students are taking out a lot of debt um, for very high cost programs and are not um, getting a good outcome. I think that's really where these data are most important, most impactful. That's where they can raise the red flags about concerns for students and particularly for low-income students who could be taking taken advantage of, of you know, by particular um, institutions. Um, and you know, we hope that's not happening in a widespread way, but we need to be able to have some checks and balances to make sure that people aren't being taken advantage of. That was Michelle Van Noy. Thanks to her and to Michael Itzkowitz of Third Way for their insights about the use of data on workforce success in student decision-making and college accountability. In the coming weeks, we'll dig into the debate over the possible use of Pell Grants for shorter-term programs, whether some colleges are shrinking or rethinking how they use their campuses, and how professors and institutions might sustain some of the compassion and flexibility they built into teaching and learning during the pandemic, even as it recedes. I hope you'll come back soon, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. I'm Doug Letterman, and this is The Key.